0: Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rizak. This is the show that gives you insights and resources in how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. I remember reading Stephen Nachmanovich's book, Free Play, when I was a young man. I was getting curious about new ideas and new ways of approaching my life, and the idea that improvisation could be an important life skill seemed both radical and relevant to me. I love writers that take a road less traveled and then share the fruits of their path with the rest of the tribe. We tend to think that great improvisers are like jazz musicians or improv comedy geniuses like Robin Williams. We don't think of improvisation as a skill that we possess and can craft for better creativity and expression. Yet here's a quote by my guest today, quote, We are all improvisers, the most common form being speech. Every conversation is a form of jazz. The activity of instantaneous creation is as ordinary to us as breathing, unquote. And we tend to think that we can meticulously plan our lives and follow the plan to the T and that this will make for an ideal life. But let's be honest, isn't there a large improvisational element to any well-lived life? Isn't that what gives life its magic? This ability to surprise us and keep us creative and on our toes? Here's another quote by my guest. Quote, a creative life is risky business. To follow your own course, not pattern on parents, peers, or institutions, involves a delicate balance of sticking to your guns and remaining open to change, unquote. I love this. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Stephen Nakhmanovich is an improvisational violinist and the author of the classic work, Free Play. Stephen performs and teaches internationally at the intersections of multimedia, performing arts, ecology, and philosophy. He is the author of a new book, The Art of Is, Improvising as a Way of Life. Here is my interview with Stephen Nakhmanovich. All right. I am here with Stephen Nakhmanovich. Stephen, welcome to Basecamp Camp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Your name, your last name, reminds me of Rachmaninov. <laughs> yes,
1: it's actually the same name because Nachman is compassion in Hebrew, and Rachman
0: is compassion in Arabic. Yeah, that's really great. You wrote a book, "Free Play: Improvisation in Life and Art." That's been like thirty years ago, hasn't it? Yeah, I had that book as a young man. I'm fifty-three, and I I bought that book as a I was in my early twenties and I was just starting to break out of my musical taste that had to be classic rock. And I was starting to listen to jazz in particular, like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Charlie Parker. It was this new, for me, a new way of appreciating music and that these guys were improvising their compositions on the spot was astounding to me and so when I was browsing bookstores I saw a free play and I was like a book about improvisation in life and art so I picked it up and it has sat on my bookshelf ever since I've read it a number of times I love the book it's such an appreciation of the arts and there's not a lot of books on improvisation out there that I can find or at the time certainly not so I guess my first question is how did you originally get interested in improvisation and when did you know that it was gonna be something that you were gonna make your life's path?
1: Well, there's two answers to that question. Mm. The mundane answer is that I was classically trained as a violinist as a kid, Mm -hmm. though at the time I thought I was gonna be a scientist of some sort. Mm. And and in my 20s, I discovered improvising Mm. pretty much on my own. Um, And uh, I mean, there's sort of a long story to that. I started giving totally improvised solo concerts on violin, viola, and electric violin Mm -hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area and started collaborating with other musicians and dancers and other kinds of artists. That was in the mid-1970s. That's what I've been doing ever since. In 1980, I met Yehudi Menuhin, the great violinist, Mm -hmm. who became a kind of mentor of mine. And he said, well, you should really write a book about this. So the book Free Play kind of emerged from those conversations. It became very obvious that uh, it really was about life first and art second. There may be the technical chops that you may have as a violinist or whatever instrument you play or theater or filmmaking or whatever your art form is. Mm -hmm. But more important, you're getting into the deep origins of the creative process within each of us. Yes. So that's the mundane answer to your question. The real answer to your question is that I learned how to become an improviser because I was once a baby. Of course, 100% of human beings have had this experience. There's nothing specialized about it at all. And babies improvise language. They improvise movement. Mm -hmm. They learn to communicate from scratch. I mean, very often when I teach workshops that might be, let's say, a mixture of really experienced musicians and people who have no particular talent at all, Mm -hmm. we always start with gibberish, Mm. universal language. Because everybody can make sound, everybody can move, and you can make really interesting art out of just about any form of sound and movement that you have had experience with as a
0: baby. You said in a free play quote, "Don't let anyone tell you the arts are just a frill, some sideshow to the main events of life." Unquote. I love this quote as a as somebody that loves the arts. Why is is the arts not just some frill to you? <laughs> I know it, it seems obvious, but for some people, I think they think I think some of the some of the yeah. people they think I don't know, you know that's nice. Oh to no, make no, oh, we
1: know what the, we know what they think, and we know yeah. that in a, in a not just our country, but in yeah. countries all over the world that are dominated by business.
0: Yes, yes,
1: which of course can also be creative and playful in its own way. Right. The idea that uh, everything has to have utilitarian value. Mm. And even the arts, there's a tremendous amount of um, literature now in which people who run arts organizations, who are desperate to keep their funding intact, are trying to justify the arts by saying that it's good for you cognitively which it is of course mm-hmm. but it's like uh, implying that if your kid learns music then your kid will get better grades in school and right. they'll get into a good college and then they'll get a well-paying job so it's still trying to identify the arts with money making right in spite of the fact that of course the arts practice of any art is in for in fact great for a kid's yeah. cognitive development sure. Uh, In The Art of Is, um, there's several chapters where I talk about Herbert Zipper. He became a friend of mine in Los Angeles in the 90s when he was in his 90s. Mm -hmm. And he had been a conductor in Vienna, um, perhaps slated to be like another Bruno Walter or somebody like that, conductor of a big symphony. Yep. Uh, but the Anschluss came, and he was thrown into Dachau by the Nazis. On his third day there, they were hauling rocks or something like that as slave laborers, and he started reciting some poetry by Goethe, and he noticed that his fellow slaves, fellow prisoners, were standing up a bit straighter and breathing mm-hmm. deeply, and this was having a positive effect on them. He gradually got to the point in his time there where he started composing pieces and organizing clandestine concerts mm-hmm. behind the latrines hmm. where prisoners who were, who had some musical skill played these songs. They weren't, you know, great 20th century music. They were just songs, you know, yeah. but they did, as he put it, they did the job. Right. Because uh, right. art is power. Mm-hmm. And you look at people of that time. I mean, here's Shostakovich, great Soviet composer who was uh, constantly being uh, threatened by Stalin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, you know, in many dictatorships, like in Soviet Russia, like in Nazi Germany, like in many other places, uh, artists are always on the edge between uh doing their work and being tolerated doing work that supports the state and being rewarded or being yeah. thrown in prison or being shot you know and he was mm-hmm. stozkovich who was all over the place there with those relationships and the question is why did stalin who was the dictator of an enormous continent sized country with these enormous armies and enormous industrial machinery at his disposal, why did he bother himself with a composer of chamber music and symphonies? Yeah. And the answer is that he realized that art is power. Yeah. yeah, And art is the self-expression of human beings and the mutual sharing of that expression among people. And it is freedom.
0: There's something I wanted to talk to you about. You You said... I'm going to quote, creativity, innovation, vision. A generation ago, these words were charged with meaning. Now they have become rancid, insipid, and banal. Overuse and deliberate misuse as marketing buzzwords have rendered them into cheap commodities with a limited shelf life. When something is described as cutting edge, you just know it's going to be dull, unquote. (laughs) I love this. I love this. And it's, it's not just creativity, innovation, and vision. I mean, Anytime I see leadership, I'm like, oh, God, leadership. My, yeah. I, even yeah. though leadership is really a fascinating topic, but it's just so overdone and just there's no tread on the tires of that word anymore. And it's the same thing with creativity and innovation vision. So as a human tribe who value innovation and creativity, how do we reclaim the words do we need new words to describe the creative process
1: i think we always need new words and then then sometimes the old words can come back
0: right it Um, needs a rest right (laughs)
1: you know when i um when i'm asked to describe what my books are about the simple answer is the creative process Mm -hmm. um, and how that works within people and among people socially yeah um but as you've as you said um uh These words uh, get commercialized Mm -hmm. and trademarked and start to mean absolutely nothing. Right. So certainly, when I hear the word innovation, I start looking for the green exit sign. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, when you're looking for that exit sign, you want to keep your hand on your wallet. Yeah, uh, because it usually means somebody is trying to think of a new method of taking your money. Totally, Totally. And yet, of course, innovation by itself simply means doing something new, yeah. which can be wonderful, yeah. depending on the context. Um, Walt Whitman uh, wrote a death poem. Um, he wasn't actually dying quite yet, it was like two years before he died. Mm-hmm. But he's describing his feelings at what he imagined to be the time of his death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he, and he, the poem is called Farewell My Fancy.
2: Hmm.
1: And in the 19th century, what we now call creativity was called fancy. Ah, I did not know that. And um, it really, that word sort of struck me because, of course, now it's a really obsolete word. Yeah. And actually, we can use it again now. And maybe, you know, creativity and innovation and all these things need to go into some kind of underground Conveyor belt for 75 years and then they'll be worth using again.
0: So we're bringing, back fancy. <laughs> we're bringing back fancy. We're bringing
1: back fancy. And you know, words are always like this because in yeah. our society, I mean, it was true always, but certainly in the post internet society, mm-hmm. uh, ideas and words and marks and symbols get recycled so fast that uh it goes from something fresh to something
0: rancid uh in no time at all i I wanted to ask you about um habits and habituation because one thing i notice about people is their tendency to create habits and then the habits become this kind of box that they sit in it's difficult they just do the same thing on autopilot Um, that's myself included i remember taking a feldenkrais class when i was young And, you know, he was talking about habitual movements and how, uh, when we're born, I think he said, uh, we have 10,000 different movements at our disposal. By the time you graduate from high school, you're losing, you're using like 250 of them or something like that. Something shockingly. (laughs) And he said, why don't you go home tonight instead of brushing your teeth with your dominant hand, just try brushing it with the other one. And it, I did that. And it was just this radical, like, wow, I would have never thought to do this. And so I guess my question to you, since you teach improvisation, do you allow yourself to get into habits of like, no, this is how I do things day to day. And then when I teach, I need to get in a different mindset. Are you kind of always looking to not, you know, watch out for habits because that can be really, I start just going through the motions of things. And you know, how, how do you approach that that topic?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's an enormous problem because on the one, I mean, I, I, I'm i a violinist and mm-hmm. I every day and um i'm always improvising and very often the improvisations that i play are really boring Mm. and they're oh i've done this a million times before or something similar to this um and um finding the way uh into something really interesting which may or may not relate to what you've done before. Mm -hmm. uh, That's the ticket. And we don't always have that ticket. And we don't even always want that ticket because sometimes, uh, I mean, you can't, if you're gonna play a musical instrument or do any kind of skill whatsoever Mm -hmm. with some degree of ability, uh, you need to practice it a lot and you need to repeat it a lot. And you need to get into habits.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're not going to play a musical instrument without having developed a lot of habits and a right. lot of conventional ways of doing things. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and practice certainly helps you. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to get a medical procedure done, you want somebody who's done it thousands of times, not right. somebody who has some um, uh, great idea about how to do it but hasn't actually done it. Right, right. So we're always playing on the edge between um, habit and newness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, between practice and breaking out of our ruts, mm-hmm. and we really need both
0: sides of that. Mm. Why? Why is? I saw that in in free play. Um, you had mentioned the importance of listening why is it so important in improvisation? I I lead men's workshops and recently I, I sort of confessed to the men in that group that I feel like if I, if there was one skill that I can could continue to develop the rest of my life, it would be the ability to listen. I think, I think that that would hold the key to so many things for me. If I just said, this is what I want to get good at and committed to it because it, it, it's not just listening to you, for instance, Stephen. It's like listening to my own inner voice, listening to nature, the divine, the important people, the everyday people that come in, I come into contact with. And, um, and it's not always talked about. And the, the people that I know that are really great listeners, I'm thinking of one, my friend Mark. He's an astoundingly skillful listener. And you just get the sense that he's on another level in his ability to listen. Yeah. And um, and why is it so important in improvisation to be to be a good well, listener?
1: Well, as, as I said, uh, listening is the score. Mm. There is no other score. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's forms of improvising where you're improvising on a theme or on some kind of a
2: mm-hmm.
1: a, a set pattern. Yeah, and you work your way around that pattern and mm-hmm. ornament it in various ways. But um, uh, complete improvisation is coming from nothing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and nothing is a really important thing for us to mm-hmm. understand.
0: You you wrote um, one of the chapters in your book uh, is titled "The Way It's Supposed to Be," yeah. and it's all about expectations and the creative life. And I wanted to ask you about that because how do you how do you keep expectations from creeping in? Uh, the the chapter reminded me of Suzuki Roshi he I remember I saved a quote of his that said no expectations is samadhi which is bliss right so no expectations is bliss and you know I've applied that to my marriage at times when I'm like you know maybe I have expectations here that are getting in the way um how do you how do you dance with that where you maybe have expectations about how people show up or how you want your life to go or the people in your life but you know where where what's your path in that what's your how do you dance with that i guess
1: well uh dance is the right word because mm-hmm. of course uh we have minds and therefore we have expectations mm-hmm. uh, and the expectations certainly get in the way of whatever actually happens yes you know because what actually happens is never going to square with your expectation right um and yet, um, um, we're continually thinking them up. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like your question about habit before. Yes. You know, there are patterns. Um, the biologist, uh, Conrad Waddington, used the term creodes to describe uh, patterns of action that organisms fall into, yeah. You know, whether at, at the level of animal behavior or at the level of biochemistry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that there's sort of grooves in time that we make mm. through our habits, through our expectations. Yeah. Um, however, we can also stand back sometimes, you know, to make time to stand back, to recognize when we are um, operating within that realm of expectations rather yeah. than actually paying attention to what is happening Mm -hmm. right here okay to stand back from what we have learned through our habits Mm -hmm. so that we might also learn something different Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for some reason the talk about expectations i had this thought my father uh on his stationery he had a kind of tongue-in-cheek quote that was on his stationery where he made notes and stuff and handed to people and it said uh just let me have my way exactly in everything and a sunnier and happier creature does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was a funny, like that is a funny thing to have on your stationery in business, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you have a formal uh, meditation practice or, or something like that? I, I never,
1: do I, I do Zazen.
0: Zazen. Okay. Okay. So have you been, you must have practiced that for a long time. Probably I would imagine. Huh? Yeah. A well, long yeah Where do you? Yeah yeah. Where did you start that in San Francisco? Or? San Francisco's ensign? Oh yeah, very famous. Yeah. You'd mentioned interbeing in the book, which is starting to me felt like it's touching on a little bit of mysticism and so that jumped out. I grabbed it because I'm like, I want to ask him about that and what what he meant by that? What's your definition and what do listeners need to know about the concept of interbeing?
1: Oh great. Well, uh, it's interesting because all the uh, threads of our conversation are coming together and um, are weaving into a pattern that's Mm -hmm. been there from the beginning. Nice. And um, so when we talked about the um, emptiness of the cup, Mm -hmm. okay, when we talk about emptying yourself of expectations, well, the... Primary idea of Buddhism, whether it be Zen or Tibetan or other forms of Buddhism, is the emptiness of inherent existence. Mm. Now, when Westerners hear the word emptiness, we tend to freak out because we think we're hearing about some kind of nihilism, right. or um, you know, that some kind of philosophical stance that nothing really exists, or something like that, which right. is not what it is. The operative word is inherent. Mm. So, um, you know, we're both talking to each other through computers. Mm -hmm. And so this laptop in front of me, it's made of aluminum and plastic, and there's copper wiring inside and silicon chips Mm -hmm. and acid in the battery and uh, glass, and all of this material came from somewhere.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, the aluminum was mined. And the um, designers have stories and the miners who mined the aluminum have stories Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the um, forests uh, in the the, uh, Cretaceous area uh, that uh, that, uh, were buried under the earth and became petroleum which then became part of the plastic that's in the keys of the computer, Mm. that's a story. The labor relations of the people, many of them in China who assembled Mm. this computer, that's a story. So the computer has infinitely many stories Mm. and infinitely much information. And the more you go behind the glass and the aluminum and the copper and everything else, Uh, you realize that the um, computer is interconnected with everything else and it's infinitely full of information and stories. Mm -hmm. The one thing it is empty of is an inherent existence all by itself. Right. So we like to use nouns in our language as though the computer were a thing Mm -hmm. and that you can draw a boundary around it or, for example, each of us as a skin, and we think that skin is a boundary between us and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But those boundaries are what the illusion is, you know. Uh, We are full of infinitely interconnected stories. Mm -hmm. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Mm -hmm. poet, Buddhist, monk, peace activist, um, had a knack for developing words that communicated these concepts to modern society. Mm. So he invented the word interbeing. That is, if emptiness um, strikes people as a little weird, Right. that what emptiness really is, is interbeing.
0: Oh, I love it. That's what I was going to ask you. Is is there a practice to sort of anchor the perception of interbeing into your day-to-day life more you know is is it meditation is really that's what that's for because i think well i'll just speak personally like sometimes i'm really in a space where i'm sensing those interconnections in the inner being and other times i see separation i just see me and you talking you know what yeah. i mean i go in and out of it but you know You're how right.
1: to, that's you the know. balance
0: yeah you
1: know. yeah uh, balance is the overall theme okay You're in and out between habit and novelty. You're in and out between practice and improvising. Mm -hmm. You're in and out between connected to the world and being by yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the nature, and of course, we're breathing in and out all the time. And we're having, as two human beings, we're having a conversation back and forth. And that's the nature of conversation is really the template for all of this.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was just wonderful to talk to you. I'm glad you're feeling better. Um, Your new book, The Art of Is, Improvising as a Way of Life, is fantastic. And I will share with the listeners where to go grab that. And just thank you so much. Get well soon. Keep teaching. Thank you so much for the, for your writing and your teachings. It's, it's reached a lot of people and it's made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. So thank you.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: If you are interested in art and improvisation in life, go pick up one of Stephen's excellent books at www.freeplay.com. His writing has an excellent way of expanding your vision of life. And I will leave you with a quote from the great dancer and visionary Martha Graham, which perfectly captures what we've been exploring today. She says, quote, There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium. It will be lost, unquote. Go try that out, my dear listeners, and we'll see you next week. That's our show for today men remember that the story of your life is not yet all told i'm tony rezak and thank you for listening to base camp for men